0: All right, would you join me once again for a word of prayer? We praise you, Father, again for how good you have been to us, giving us the privilege of singing these songs, songs that remind us of your word. We need to be salt and light. We need to be reminded that you are still our king and how much we desperately need you. As we come to your word now, Father, we understand that your word is what gives faith Faith comes by hearing and hearing by your word. So teach us faith to believe and to live. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles with me, if you would please, to Joshua chapter 6 today. Continuing our journey through this tremendous book in the Old Testament, the old Negro spirit remind us and proclaims, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, And the walls came a-tumbling down. It's both right and wrong. The walls certainly came a-tumbling down. Everyone charged in to claim the victory. But Joshua never fought the battle of Jericho. It wasn't what Joshua did. God gave Jericho into Israel's hands And the whole sixth chapter of the book of Joshua centers on the power of a sovereign God. If there's a hero to this story, it isn't Joshua, it isn't the nation of Israel, it isn't Rahab, it is God and God alone who gets all the glory for what happens here in Joshua to a chapter 6. Now there was a part for Joshua and the nation of Israel to play in this story. It's not like God handed them Jericho on a plate, but this event was designed to be done in such a way that the whole nation of Israel would have memory as a gift from a sovereign commander. And this was really going to set the for all of their future battles that they were going to face as they moved into the promised land to take it. And it worked. If you go later to Joshua chapter 21, we find this written, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there, and the Lord gave them rest on every side as he had sworn to their fathers, not one Of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. There is such a powerful principle that this passage teaches us today. It could be seen as the overarching theme to the entire book. This is the principle. If you get nothing else this morning, make sure you get this obedient action in response to divinely given promises is the channel by which the sovereign grace of God is experienced in the lives of His people. It's through obedient action in response to the promises of God. The tactics will change through the years. We won't have a physical barrier between us and our enemies, as the nation of Israel did as they were backed up against the Red Sea. We won't have the rivers parting before our eyes, We won't be winning battles as long as Moses or some other spiritual leader keeps his hands raised, as was the experience of the people of Israel earlier. But the principle still stands. The channel through which the sovereign grace of God is experienced in the lives of the people of God today comes through obedient action. God gives us His Word, and we act on that. It should be the central focus of our lives. Now, chapter 6 begins with really a blunt statement of fact. Here is the reality. It says in verse 1, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. No way out, no way in. The city had withdrawn, as common of cities that day, cities would have these walls built around them so that when an enemy came up against them, the entire city would withdraw behind the walls into what's called siege mode. They're going to stay inside those walls and try to wait out the attacking army against them. And once they are inside the walls of the city, the only way that the city can fall if the resources that they have piled inside the city have run out, and they would then have to surrender. So it's a waiting game. The city withdraws into siege mode and basically says, we've got our trust in our walls. We've put a lot of effort in our walls. We have built our walls meticulously and carefully, And so we are going to withdraw behind our walls when we see an enemy coming. That's what they did. This is a very rough image. I apologize for the crudeness of it, but it shows us something very important. There's a 12-foot embankment of rock that was along the side of the hill. On top of that was... The first wall, it was called the outer city wall. This wall was about 25 feet high. And then there was more of an embankment. Then there was the upper city wall behind that. That would have been another 21 feet high. Together, the walls of Jericho stood roughly 46 feet high. That's a huge wall and yet i discovered this week that to walk around the city would be less than half a mile here's my personal application i'm going to take that as the biblical standard for a daily walk less than half a mile can't do any more but again that would mean on sundays i have to go three and a half so, but no that that's the size of the city, you could walk around it in half a mile, but it had these huge walls, and the people felt secure behind them. So the people of Israel were facing what, in their perspective, was an impossible battle. So let's see how impossible battles are won. Jump verse 2 and going through verse 7, we see, first of all, that we look to God for instructions. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. With its king and mighty men of valor, you shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when the long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet... All the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. There's a chapter break here between chapters 5 and 6. It's really kind of unfortunate that the break is there. At the end of chapter 5, you remember, Joshua encounters this unknown person and finds out he's the commander of the Lord of hosts. And Joshua falls on his face before the commander of the Lord of hosts and says, what do you want me to do? And unfortunately now there's a break between chapter 5 and chapter 6, but these, these instructions in verses 2 through 7 are the answer to the, to the question that Joshua asked. What, would you, what does my Lord, what does my Lord have for me to do? So here in these, these verses, find the answer. Here is the divine strategy for winning an impossible battle. Notice several things. First of all, your focus is important. You'll notice in verse 2, the Lord said to Joshua, and the first word that comes out of his mouth is "see." It's not that Joshua was blind. Please understand that. It's not that Joshua couldn't possibly focus on the 46-foot walls that stood before him. This word is a word of focus. This is a call to get God's perspective The outcome has already been determined. There's not a shred of doubt about what is going to happen. The important thing for Joshua is to keep God's plan in focus. The enemy is powerful. The defense seems unbeatable. Yet God tells Joshua, I've given Jericho into your hands. And the tense here is important. God doesn't tell Joshua that he will give might give. He says, I have given. It's a done deal. You just have to keep your focus on what God already accomplished for you in your life. That's what he tells Joshua. You see any practical application of that in our lives? we got to keep God in our focus. When impossible battles come up before us, they look impossible. They look undefeatable. And yet we have to, by faith, keep our eyes focused no matter what the battle, we, there's a greater God. We just finished singing, you are my king. Yeah. That's what we've got to do. Your focus is important. Like our salvation, the work has already been done for us. The final story in our lives is already written. You know I love Southern Gospel music and there's one Southern Gospel song. It's simply entitled, I read the back of the book and we win. What a great perspective to buoy us in our lives, isn't it? To be able to say, you know, no matter what happens in my life, even if this physical, frail, miserable, physical life is taken from me, I win. That's a win for me. Secondly, we need to notice in verses 3 through 5, your obedience is important even if it doesn't make sense. The men of war were to march around the city once a day for six days. The focus isn't on the men of war, it's on the Ark of the Covenant that the priest would bear. It would go before them, literally it would be in the midst of them. On the seventh day, they were to march around the city seven times and blow the trumpet. And you guys know I've got this weird imagination. And I can't help but wonder what the response of the men of war was when Joshua passed on the strategy. These guys are ready. They've just heard from the spies, the hearts of these people are melting before us. They've just come back. They, they've heard this report. They've seen God's part the Jordan River before them. Man, they are chomping at the bit to get going. And Joshua comes back to them and says, okay, guys, listen, here's the plan. First day, we're going to march around the city and not say anything. Okay, great. Then what? Then we're going to go home. Great. What do we do the next day? We're going to do the same thing next day. What about the next day? Yeah, same thing. Just march. Six days, we're going to march around the city and do nothing until the seventh day, and then we're going to see some great. I can't help but wonder, did these men of war say, do we get the right guy? You know? Something to, there's just something about this strategy that seems absolutely ridiculous. What will our marching in silence, around the city of Jericho, half a mile, do for anything here. But here's the important thing to note here. This plan was met with obedience. They didn't question Joshua. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30 tells us, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled seven days. In the faith of instructions that didn't make a bit of sense to them, the people put their faith in Joshua and in Joshua's God and they moved forward and ultimately they came out victorious in all that. Life's not always going to make sense. And the instructions that we receive from God may not always make sense. If your enemy strikes you on your right cheek, turn to him your left cheek also. Mm -mm. No, that that doesn't sound right to me. If your enemy hates you, show love to him. That doesn't make sense. My enemy hates me. It'd be a whole lot more fun for me to beat him up. But that's not what we're told to do. If your enemy is hungry, feed him him starve. This is the way the Word of God works in our lives. The instructions don't always make sense to us. And part of that is because we don't even recognize our brains are too small and too feeble to be able to comprehend the plan of an an omnipotent, powerful God who can move mountains. Your obedience is important, even if the instructions don't make any sense. So first of all we look for instructions. Secondly verses 8 14, we follow those instructions completely. look at verse eight and just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns went before before the Lord, went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard. And again, in my weird imagination, none of this at the enemies up on the walls, right? Okay? Okay. Now, don't make your voice, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it, camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priest took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets horn before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually, and the armed men were walking before them, the rear guard were walking after the, the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually, and the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did for six days. You know what I love about this? To men of battle. They would have trusted in their weapons. They would have trusted in their strength. But now God says, it's not about your weapons, and it's not about your strength. It's about your complete obedience. That's what gained them the victory. And again, it appears that the army was split into two parts. One went before the priests who carried the, the ark and the horns, and the other came along behind. All of this, I believe, was to put the focus on the ark, which symbolized the presence of God with them. No shouting, no talking for the first six days. And here's the thing. No doubt, the people of Jericho, who may have stood high on that 46-foot wall, looked down on him and said, what the heck are these guys doing? This makes no sense. This was weird. This was unexpected. They knew that the God of Israel was what he was capable of doing. I wonder if the rumor spread throughout the city that this God of Israel is going to split the city in two like he did the Jordan River. Because that's what they might have normally assumed from what they had just seen this God do to the Jordan River. But the anticipation was probably absolutely maddening. One day, they watch the people walk around and go, huh? it doesn't make any sense. It almost came. They almost attacked, but they didn't. I'm, I'm going to share something very personal with you about myself at this point. Something that my wife has she's looking at me with that what are you doing? just sharing something personally every day i almost sneeze a lot it almost comes and i have all of these facial con- <laughs> it, it doesn't come and i'll do that over and over she's laughing up here now i'll do that over and over throughout the day <laughs> it doesn't come and it's absolutely maddening. It drives me bonkers. I wish I could sneeze, but I don't sneeze. I finally do. And when I sneeze, I end up sneezing three times. That's is your, your weird pastor, right? I don't know if it's because of the surgery that I had on my brain those years ago. Not likely. It's probably just that I'm just a weird person. But when I have those episodes where I almost sneeze, but I don't, it drives me nuts. And her too, because it always happens about the time she wants to tell me something important. Right? Hey, i got so, I, got, I got to share some weary person with you. Okay. <laughs> this was the experience of the inhabitants of Jericho. They thought the attack was going to come. And the first day, all that happened was they marched around the city and went back home same happened the second day, and the third, and the fourth, and fifth, and the sixth. For six days they watched as Israel's God approached their walls, and nothing happened. Some additional instructions are given in verses 15 through 18. Things that God told Joshua, Joshua passes on to the people, every person, every personal possession in the city was devoted to... Only the silver, the gold, the iron, and the bronze items were to be carried away and put into the treasury. And I think we need to touch on this a little bit, because I think this has caused some confusion in the past. Let me just say, I hope we certainly recognize that everything in the world belongs to God. It's His. Paul teaches in Romans chapter 9 that the clay has no right to turn to the potter and say, Why are you doing this? But what we see happening in this section of our text is far more than the whims of a capricious tyrant. And you got to go back in history to understand it. Back in Genesis, God gave this land to Abraham, but informs him in Genesis 15 that it's going to be several generations before you'll be able to take possession of this land because... Quote here, the wickedness of the Amorites is not complete. There was a people living in that land that had been sinful time after time after time. And God was being patient with them, hoping they would repent, but they never did. But there was going to come a time when God was going to act. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 5. Moses tells the people this, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Let me just tell you, judgment is always God's final result. In this case, it came after generations of of provocations. God spells out the details of the wickedness of the residents of the promised land in Leviticus chapter 18, where you read how wicked and unclean these people were. Sexual perversion, child sacrifice, all kinds of other abominations. So let me just say this, there can be no accusation of injustice made against God because He judged these people for their incredible, unrepentant wickedness. May I say that the same can be said of our generation. Incredible, unrepentant wickedness. The book of Romans reminds us that we are without excuse because of this wickedness. So don't let your heart be hardened like the Canaanites did. If you are here today and you have never given your life to Jesus Christ, you've never claimed by faith the gift of eternal salvation, do that now. Don't let your heart get hardened like the Canaanites did. Instead, receive the gracious gift of salvation, not earned by your balance of books, but rather by the sovereign grace of God who has the power to condemn every single person, eternal. So, we follow instructions completely. Thirdly, see the deliverance of God, verses 20 and 21. So the people shouted, trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they came they devoted all in the city to destruct the sword. What a tremendous victory. All of a sudden now, seven times marching around, still not saying anything, but at the end of that seventh lap, there is a shout by all the people. And the walls collapse. And every single person person rushes in to conquer the city. And they dedicate it to destruction. This was with a shout of victory, a trumpet blast of celebration. The deliverance is detailed. The destruction is terrifying. Archaeologists tell us that from examining the ruins of Jericho many years later, it appears that the wall fell outward. And there's only one explanation for that. God was on the inside pushing. This was not the work of the people of Israel pushing, out, pushing in from the outside, so, see the deliverance of God when it comes. And then rejoice. But to the two men who spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought out all her relatives, put them outside the camp of Israel fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron that they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid laid an oath on Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn, he lay its foundation. And at the cost of his younger son, shall he set up its gate. So the Lord was Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Rahab's house would have been easily recognizable. Not only just because of the scarlet cord, because it was the only section of the wall that didn't fall. The same two spies who were sent in to spy now and find her, and they bring out everyone who was in her house with her, just as they had promised, and just as God had promised, she is saved, alive. All of them are. God's promise lasting value. He's not going to go back on his his word. And there in the midst of Israel at that time was living proof. They could always look outside the camp originally. Rahab and her family were kept outside the camp. But notice it says that she lived in Israel eventually too. There's living proof. We have a God who will keep his words even to the worst of sinners. Same can be said when God condemns a place to desolation. Verse 26, Joshua spoke to Rahab and her family pronounced a curse on any who would try to rebuild the city on the site and the curse involved the death of the oldest and the youngest son interestingly in first corinthians chapter 6 or first kings chapter 16 many generations later a man named haiel decided to rebuild jericho he lost both his oldest and his youngest sons god doesn't mess around when he proclaims judgment. And I conclude a beautiful statement, wonderful blessing. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. Tremendous story, but how much more than a story it is. We can actually bring out some principles for some modern day disciples. This is for you and me. What do we take away from this story other than wasn't that a great time in history? Principle number one, We need to search out, listen to, accept, and adopt the divine strategy for victory that is revealed for us in Scriptures. Search it out. Listen to it. Accept it. Adopt the divine strategy for victory that is revealed for us in Scripture. Far too often, the Word of God and godly counselor are the last thing people turn to in times of need. When a marriage is a mess, when parenting has gone haywire, when relationships are all screwed up, then we finally turn to God almost as a last resort. Don't do that. Learn from this. There is one God who's in control and one God in whom we find hope no matter what our issues are. Secondly, because Christ is the commander. Our job is to trust him, believing his wonderful promises, and to obey, obey him with detailed, meticulous attention. We will not always know why we are called to a particular course of action according to the word of God, but if God's word says it, we need to obey it. Somebody say amen. Right? It's why we're open Bible church. If the word of God tells us what we're supposed to do and it it's very clear to us, we're doing that. No making excuses, no finding loopholes. The word of God says it. We need to believe it and we need to do it. Thirdly, the battle belongs to the Lord. He knows the end the beginning. He knows how to bring us victory. Nothing is ever outside the realm of his sovereign control. Charles Spurgeon once observed if everything works together for our good, then nothing is left to work for our ill. Not a good thought. If God works everything together for our good, there's nothing out there that can harm us, nothing out there that can do us any ill. And then, fourth and finally, this morning. We're to waste no time or energy trying to imagine how God might achieve what seems to us to be impossible. Don't try to figure it all out. Nobody, no nation, no kingdom would have thought that God's strategy would bring down the walls of Jericho. Nobody in the nation of Israel upon hearing Joshua's instruction would have said, oh wow, that makes perfect sense. Nobody. No other nation than the people of Jericho looking down on the people of Israel as they marked on the city. They simply said, it's weird. I can't figure that out. We don't need to waste our time trying to imagine how God might achieve what seems to be impossible. Joshua didn't have to come up with a strategy. God gave it. Our problem So often we substitute our plans for God's priorities and we foolishly convince ourselves that our own ingenuity can be a replacement for obedience. God forbid. And God forgive us for the times we think we can come up with better plans than what God gives us right in His Word. It's there, folks. That's why we are called to become students of the word of God. If you are here this morning and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to dedicate yourself to studying the word of God. Don't just come here and listen to me preach it or somebody else preach it. I mean, that's a good thing to do. I'm not telling you to go someplace else. But it's never enough just to sit back and be fed once a week. You wouldn't survive if you did that on your own with your own personal food. Get into the Word of God. If you are here this morning and you have never placed your faith in what Jesus Christ did on that cross to save you from your sins and to give you the incredible gift of eternal life through faith alone in Jesus Christ, you need to do that today. Don't harden your heart like the Canaanites did who thought God doesn't see. Not only does God see, He keeps record. He's patient enough to let iniquities fill up. And then comes his judgment. And the only way to escape that is through faith in Jesus Christ. Do that today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. This incredible illustration from the Old Testament. What a blessing is ours to know it, and to learn from it. Father, the call to action today is for us as individuals and for us corporately the Bible Church to get into your word, find your battle plan, and then take the wonderful step of faith and obedience to follow your plan and thereby finding our victory and success. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.